and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we've just been singing there of the work of the Holy Spirit and we believe in him and we do ask now that as we turn to your word, that your spirit would be with us, that he would help and enable me as I preach on these verses and likewise that he would work in all of our hearts to point us to Jesus and to create and strengthen and nurture faith in him. Our Father, we ask all these things for your glory's sake and in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are again in this intriguing book of Ecclesiastes, and we're picking up this morning at chapter 1, verse 12. And so if possible, please could you have those verses open. If you were here last Sunday morning, then you'll remember the teacher who is writing uh, this book uh, introduced his uh, book to us. And he did so, first of all, by telling us what his subject is going to be. He's going to teach us about what he calls life under the sun. That is the, the little slogan that he uses to describe life here on earth in this fallen creation. What is it like to live in a world like this? That is the the topic of this book. And then he introduced us to his outlook on this topic, which again he sums up in his own style with this little word, vanity. Vanity. And as we saw last week, what that means is that life here on earth in this fallen creation is fleeting and elusive. There is no gain to be had from it, no lasting gain, because nothing here really satisfies us. Nothing here is really new. Uh, Nothing here uh, really lasts. And maybe that introduction that the teacher has given to us uh, causes you to think, well, how did he arrive at this view of things? Maybe you want to say to the, the teacher, why is this your outlook on life under the sun? That's what the, the teacher is going to tell us in the next section of the book. How did he arrive at this conclusion that life under the sun is all vanity? The other day, Mary's parents were babysitting for us uh, one evening uh, last week. And uh, the next morning, we received a phone call from them telling us that Mary's dad had lost his signet ring a precious family heirloom. And so they wanted to know, had he dropped it whilst they'd been at our house the previous evening? And so that morning we spent a good while searching everywhere, moving the the furniture around, looking behind things, looking under things. And in the end, we had to phone back and say, well, 
It is nowhere to be found here. And we have looked everywhere. Now, thankfully, it did turn up over at their house shortly afterwards. And you see, the teacher is saying to us in this next section of the book, satisfaction and gain and true fulfillment is not to be found anywhere here under the sun. And trust me, I have looked everywhere for it. And this morning, we're going to listen to the teacher as he tells us the story of the first two places he looked in order to try and find true satisfaction under the sun. And the first place he looked for was in wisdom, trying to find true satisfaction in wisdom. In verses 12 and 13, the the teacher, perhaps Solomon, says, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. So this was the teacher's first attempt to try and find lasting, meaningful satisfaction and fulfillment under the sun. He says he would try and discover these things through wisdom. And he thought to himself, if I devote myself to plenty of learning, and if I grow in knowledge, if I grow in wisdom, then, if I get wise enough, I will be able to make sense of life. I'll be able to sail through life. I'll enjoy satisfaction. It's a very popular approach to life, isn't it? I remember my old uh, economics A-level teacher, uh, when I was back at school, she had this slogan that she used to quote to us time and time again, lesson after lesson. Her slogan was, education can save the world. Education can save the world. And so in our lessons we'd be talking about some big issue, poverty, uh, overpopulation, these kinds of problems in the world. And we'd be talking about how these things could be addressed with political or economic policies. And time and again she would say this to us, remember this, children, education can save the world. And a lot of people live by that mantra in their own individual lives, don't they? If I can get some good exam results, if I can get into a good college and then go to a good university and get a really good qualification, uh, learn the right skills that I need, then I can save myself. I can set myself up well for the rest of life. I can find satisfaction. That was the teacher's first thought, wasn't it? He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And you see, he's saying, by much wisdom, by much learning, by much insight, I'm going to make sense of it all. I'm going to figure out life. I'm going to discover how to make a real gain in life. 
Just get enough learning, get enough qualifications, get enough wisdom. And he acquired wisdom, and, and when he did that, he discovered two things about wisdom that he tells us here. And the first thing that he discovered are the futile limitations of wisdom. The futile limitations of wisdom. And so he tells us it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Now, don't misunderstand what the teacher is saying here. He's not saying that wisdom is pointless. And as we're going to see later on in the book, wisdom is a good thing. It's worth having wisdom. So, for example, in chapter 2, verse 13, he says, Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. There is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So he's saying it is good to grow in wisdom. But what he's telling us here is that there are futile limitations to wisdom. Or as he puts it, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, all the wisdom in the world cannot fix the brokenness of life here on earth in this fallen creation. And when we just pause and, and think about it, it is obvious, isn't it? You can be the wisest person in the world. It doesn't stop you getting ill. It doesn't stop you getting old. It doesn't stop you from dying one day. You can be the wisest businessman around and it doesn't stop a, a downturn in the market from leaving you bankrupt. You can be the wisest farmer around. It, it doesn't stop bad weather ruining your crops that year. Uh, wisdom is a good thing to have for sure, but, but it doesn't fix the brokenness of life in a fallen world, does it? What is crooked cannot be made straight. And the teacher discovered the futile limitations of wisdom. And as well as that, he also discovered the sad irony of wisdom. The sad irony of wisdom. And as he grew in wisdom, the teacher understood more of the world around him. And as he understood more of the world around him, he of course understood more of the brokenness, the unfixability of this world, the vanity of this world. And discovering all of that brought him to this conclusion that he tells us in verse 18, in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The other day I was speaking to a friend who has been experiencing some health problems and uh, he said to me that uh, after he went to the doctors and had found out about what was wrong with him, uh, he then went home, went on the internet, uh, tried to read up as much as possible about this condition. He wanted to learn as much as he possibly could about it. And he said to me, Andy, you know, the more I learned 
about what was wrong with me. The more depressed it made me. And you see, that was the, the teacher's experience as well, wasn't it? As he looked not at the sickness of himself, but the sickness of this world in which we live. And that is the more he, he learned, the more he grew in wisdom, the more he understood about life here on earth in this fallen creation, the more depressed he became. He who increases knowledge increases sorrow, he says. And this is the sad irony of wisdom. The irony is that the whole point of him getting wisdom was that he thought this is what would bring him satisfaction. This is what he thought would bring him lasting joy in life. And the irony is that getting wisdom was the thing that made him even more sad than he was in the first place. And so the teacher's first attempt at finding true and lasting satisfaction in life through wisdom backfired spectacularly, didn't it? He discovered these two things, the futile limitations and the sad irony of wisdom. And it left him in this state of increased sadness, deeper sorrow. So what will he do next? Well, ask yourself, what are we all inclined to do when we feel sad? And the answer is we turn to pleasure. When our hearts are sad, our gut reaction is to try and medicate ourselves with pleasure. I wonder, when you're feeling sad, what pleasure do you try and medicate yourself with? There are all sorts of options out there, aren't there? All kinds of pleasures, some legitimate, some illegitimate. Alcohol, drugs, sex, pornography, comfort food, parties, Netflix. And we say to ourselves when we're feeling down, I've had such a bad day that I'm going to go and... How do you end that sentence yourself? Whatever our preference is, whatever pleasure we go for, this is our technique, isn't it? So often we try and deal with the sadness of our hearts by medicating ourselves with pleasure. That's what the teacher does next, isn't it? His next experiment was to try and find lasting, gainful satisfaction through pleasure. Chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now, don't misunderstand what is being spoken of here. This is not just mindless hedonism. Now, there is, I think, something, uh, such a thing as mindless hedonism. That is, ju just filling your life with whatever gives you pleasure and doing so just for the sake of it. Pleasure for pleasure's sake. But notice, that's not what the teacher is doing here. This is not mindless hedonism. And we know that because twice, in fact, he tells us that throughout this great experiment with pleasure, he doesn't let go of wisdom. He's not being mindless here. He says in the middle of verse 3, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom. And he says it again in verse 9, also my wisdom remained with me. So this is not mindless hedonism. This is intentional, calculated, thought through, experimenting with pleasure. 
And he's saying, I am deliberately going to experiment. I'm going to test myself with pleasure. And I'm going to try my very best to find lasting satisfaction, lasting fulfillment and gain in pleasure. So we might say that this was calculated hedonism. Not every pleasure seeker is mindless in the way they go about that. I would guess that many hedonists know with crystal clarity exactly what they are doing. They are desperately searching for lasting satisfaction in life. And that is what the teacher did. The question is, well, what kind of pleasure should he try? Because there's so many different kinds of pleasure out there in the world. And he decides he's going to try all of them. I'll have a bit of everything, says the teacher. Whatever pleasure there is, I'll try it. And to start with, he experiments with what we might call the more basic pleasures. Start with the low-hanging fruit, because that's the easiest to get. So in verse 2, he, he mentions laughter. I don't know, but maybe he employed a court jester, uh, a stand-up comedian of the day, uh, to amuse him. Tell him a, a load of jokes. Fool around with some slapstick comedy. Make him laugh. Would laughter give him the satisfaction that he was looking for? Then in verse 3, he talks about cheering his body with wine. So would the buzz of alcohol, the buzz of partying, is that going to give him the satisfaction that he's looking for? And then verse 8, later on, he, he talks about having many concubines. Would having more sexual experiences with more and more people, is that going to be what gives him satisfaction in life? Will that make him truly happy? Is he going to find satisfaction in these basic pleasures, feeding his various desires and appetites like this. What he says, doesn't he, in verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? And you see, these basic pleasures don't give him any lasting satisfaction. But he doesn't give up there. And maybe he's just trying the wrong sort of pleasure. So he tries something different. And now he experiments with what we might call the more refined pleasures. And that's in verses 4 and following. What about the pleasures that, that come from lofty achievements in life? A well-ordered life, a successful life. And as well as that, the enjoyment of nature. Maybe that kind of pleasure, the more refined kinds of pleasure, will be what satisfies him. And so he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I, I bought male and female slaves. He's not going to do all of this work himself. Of course, he needs people to look after his gardens. And so he, he gets people to work those gardens, male and female. And they can't do it themselves either. So as the end of verse 7 indicates, those male and female slaves have children and there are more slaves then to work and keep these gardens. And he's thinking to himself, surely this is a better kind of pleasure now. I've matured beyond what I did beforehand in perhaps my younger years when I just indulged myself in those basic pleasures, feeding my desires, feeding my appetites. I'm above that now. I'm going to be more refined in the kind of pleasures that I pursue. And so I'm going to make 
my house really nice. And I'm going to have a really neat and tidy home. Everything's going to be kept spick and span. And I'm going to make sure the garden is immaculate. I'll cut the grass. I'll do all the weeding. I'll plant some really nice flowers, maybe some fruit trees in there. I'll keep it all watered. And it's all going to be beautiful. I'll find much pleasure in that, those refined pleasures of a, a good house and, and a nice garden. And you see, he's experimenting, isn't he, with these more refined kinds of pleasures, pleasures that are a bit more respectable, a bit more industrious, more grown up, a better class. Maybe those refined pleasures will be what will satisfy him in life. And still he's not finished, is he? He's going to try other things now. He's going to try material pleasures, basic pleasures, refined pleasures now, material pleasures. And we, we find that in verses 7 and 8. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and of provinces. And so he makes himself rich, as rich as he can possibly get, and he gathers to himself whatever possessions he wants. Maybe, just maybe, these material pleasures will satisfy his heart and these things will keep that sadness away. And you see what he's doing, don't you? He's doing what all of us do in our hearts, and that is he's medicating his sorrowful heart with pleasure. Of whatever kind he can get, any kind of pleasure. Basic pleasures, refined pleasures, material pleasures. And I wonder which of those types of pleasure do you gravitate towards, especially when you're feeling sad. When you've had a bad day, what do you turn to? Well, this man tried them all, and he immersed himself in this calculated hedonism, searching with all his might to find lasting satisfaction through pleasure. And what was the conclusion that he arrived at at the end of it all? Well, the conclusion is given to us in verse 11. Just skip ahead to that verse. He says, Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The teacher is saying at the end of this big experiment with every kind of pleasure that, that he can get his hands on, he found himself back at square one. All of that pleasure was vanity. Yeah, it was good while it lasted, but it was, it was fleeting, it was elusive. It was like a striving after the wind. There was no real gain to be had from it, no lasting fulfillment, no true satisfaction. And he discovered this paradox of pleasure, that the more of it you have, the, the more of it you need to try and keep you happy. And I wonder if you've discovered that for yourself in, in your own life. That whatever pleasures you give yourself to, they let you down in the end because they fail to satisfy you for very long. And they are enjoyable while they last. And yet they are so fleeting. They're so elusive. They don't bring you any lasting fulfillment. And so you're left saying, along with the teacher, all was vanity. And a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. 
And so the first two places where the teacher looked to find satisfaction and fulfillment, these two places of wisdom and, and then pleasure, as we've seen, they both drew a blank, didn't they? He hasn't, find, he hasn't found lasting fulfillment and satisfaction, either in wisdom or in pleasure. But he's not finished yet, and he's going to keep looking, and he's going to look in other things, other things that he, he finds under the sun, here on earth, in this fallen creation. And he's going to see if those things will satisfy his heart. And the next time we're in Ecclesiastes, we'll look where he turned next. And yet before we finish today, before we finish, there is something else in this passage that we must not miss. And I wonder if you noticed it when we read the passage earlier on. It's in verses 4 to 9 in particular. And as the teacher describes this pleasurable life that he tries to manufacture for himself, consider this, what other bit of the Bible does it remind you of? So think about those verses again. He, he creates these gardens. In these gardens, he, he plants trees, fruit trees there. And there's a plentiful supply of water so that these trees will be well watered. And then, of course, he, he puts people in the garden uh, to work it and keep it. And he, he says, male and female, I, I put there to work and keep these gardens. And not just those male and females themselves, but those who are going to come after them. They, they have children, remember. And then in the next breath, he's speaking about gold and, and other treasures that he's going to enjoy. And you see, it's all deliberately, heavily reminiscent of the Garden of Eden, isn't it? It echoes Genesis chapter 2. And there's an important reason why it does so. And if I could put it like this, what we're being told here by that allusion to Genesis 2 is that in the teacher's pursuit of pleasure, it was all like a man-made attempt to recreate Eden and to construct it out of earthly pleasures. And you know, there is a hollow ache in the heart of, of every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve. And that hollow ache is there because deep in our hearts we know that paradise has been lost. Paradise has been lost. And our hearts cannot be truly satisfied until it is regained. And you see, this is the underlying reason why we medicate our sad hearts with pleasure. And in our darkest moments, when the fallenness of this world hits home for us, we try and anesthetize ourselves against the pain by surrounding ourselves with things that feel good. And deep down the reason we do that is because at some level we want to be back in Eden. We've lost paradise and we want it back. And we know in our hearts we were made for more than life under the sun, more than life here in this fallen creation. And in our foolishness, we try and cobble together for ourselves another Eden, an alternative Eden of our own making, an Eden for us here on earth, built out of transient pleasures. And yet, as we've seen this morning, we cannot do it. It is futile. It is like striving after the wind. And yet the good news of the gospel 
is this, that all the pleasure and all the joy and all the satisfaction for which our souls long is all offered to us for free in Jesus Christ because he's paid for it all by his life and death and resurrection. Here again, those words of gracious invitation in Isaiah 55. The Lord says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. That is the invitation of the gospel. It's the invitation to the satisfaction for which our hearts long, and yet cannot find under the sun. And when we get to the very end of the Bible, and we get to the heavenly city which is the new Jerusalem and that city is described to us through John's vision in the book of Revelation we discover that the new Jerusalem is everything that Eden was but so much more as well and so John writes then the angel showed me the river of, wa of the water of life bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And you see, the invitation of the gospel is that you don't need to try hopelessly to use earthly pleasures to manufacture your own little Eden here. Because through faith in Jesus, trusting in him alone, all of the joy and all of the satisfaction and all of the fulfillment that your heart longs for will be yours with Christ and in Christ and through Christ when you arrive with him in Emmanuel's land, in the new creation. It is hopeless, isn't it, to try and make our own Eden here out of transient passing pleasures. C.S. Lewis writes, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And the teacher wants us to understand this, that all the pleasure in the world just cannot satisfy our hearts because you cannot find lasting fulfillment under the sun, here on earth in this fallen creation. And yet you can find it in Jesus Christ. And you can only find it in him. And Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Lasting joy 
forevermore with Christ. That's what's offered to us in the gospel. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these words of Ecclesiastes that we've heard from this morning. And the teacher has told us that we cannot bring about lasting fulfillment either through filling our minds with wisdom nor through filling our lives with pleasure. And good as these things may be when used rightly, they are not our saviour. And so we confess that at times we have thought that through our own wisdom or through the pursuit of whatever pleasures we are inclined towards that we can attain a a kind of man-made salvation a kind of self-constructed Eden for ourselves and it it is just so hopeless so futile and instead we, we cast all of our hopes on Jesus and we thank you that only in him can our hearts be truly satisfied only in him can we know true joy forevermore in his presence and so we pray father you would help us all to see the the foolishness and the futility of trying to be happy and joyful without jesus and it's all hollow and all fleeting and yet with him there is pleasure and joy and and treasure forevermore because he himself is our greatest treasure our father work these things in all of our hearts we pray And we ask it in our Saviour's great name. Amen.